0: Amen.
1: Good evening and welcome, my dear friends, fans, and colleagues to Voices of the Sacred Feminine Radio, and a happy, happy new year to you. It's 2016, and it's that time of resolutions as we await the return of the light, the time for new beginnings and new realities. It's the time to reinvent ourselves and tap into our fullest potential, it's the time to mix Bridget's water and fire to make steam to fuel our motivation and inspiration. Are you ready for that new normal we've been discussing here? Are you ready to manifest your desires in 2016 and help change the world in the process? Well, if you are, I'm with you, and you can tune in here every week as we push toward that paradigm shift and create that new normal. But, you know, it doesn't just happen. It takes focus. It often takes new information for all these things to happen. Sometimes it means research or exploring, testing, seeking, trying, learning new things, taking responsibility for our own education. Because, after all, we can't move forward without new discoveries or raising our awareness or fresh realizations. So here we are, you and I and all my friends across the globe. And yes, uh, you are listening from all those little and big nooks and crannies across the globe to Voices of the Sacred Feminine Radio, dedicated for the last 10 years toward taking bites from that forbidden fruit in some cases, from that tree of knowledge. You know, I love uncovering the things little known, or especially the ones patriarchy doesn't want us to know, because knowledge is power. Is it any wonder, some might rather, we might not access that knowledge or that power? Well, you know, tonight is no exception. Tonight we are going to dispel a lot of information out there about a hot topic in the news. Tonight our show is called Islam fact, and fiction. We'll be talking about the history and rituals and tradition of Islam and people of the Muslim faith. And to do that, I have the noted scholar and professor, Dr. James Rietfeld with me. He's an expert in history and religion. You won't want to miss tonight's show as we cut through the fog and the confusion to really get to the heart of the matter. So you know what's what and why some things really are the way they are. But first, if you've been a little busy and distracted with the holidays, uh, I hope you'll take a bit of time to go back and catch the last few shows from December. We had Rhian Eisler with us discussing partnership versus domination and the importance of caring economics. Also, uh, I was really uh, happy, happy, and uh, overwhelmed to speak to Richard Wolff. He's a socialist economist. He explained uh, how we got Social Security, which was a big surprise to me. You'll have to go back and listen, because I know I didn't learn about that in school. Uh, Also, how we can cure capitalism, and what Americans can do and should do to have more economic security and not be exploited in the workplace. I also started my Goddess Calling audio book series because some of you were writing me saying you wish you could listen to my books because you were so busy. And if you could listen to my books, well, you could multitask and do other things uh, because you didn't always have time to sit down with a book. I also ran some special reruns uh, from the past uh, during December. So go back. Check out the archives. I think, uh, think you might be happy with what's there. And... Um, I also invite you to stay tuned in with me uh after my interview with Dr. Reedfelt, I'm going to be sharing uh 12 quick reasons why you should consider voting for Bernie Sanders. And uh, also, um, MoveOn.org. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but uh, MoveOn.org is uh, doing some voting tomorrow. Uh, Yes, uh, people, um, Democrats, have been asking them to do a poll, and they wanted uh, a poll to see if more Democrats plan to vote for Hillary or vote for Bernie. So uh, go to moveon.org if you're not a member. Uh, it's easy enough to become a member. You just you know, sign up and uh, put your email address in, and that will make you eligible to take the poll, and that's tomorrow. So if you're listening in real time, um, you know, be sure and uh, you know, get on board with that. So uh, if you're just tuning in, uh, you've uh, maybe heard me explain before that we're starting the year off creating new stories, on Voices of the Sacred Feminine, because uh, we know our stories, our mythology, well, it shapes our culture and our future. So I'm beginning uh, 2016 with Dr. James Rietfeld, uh, not just tonight, but next week too. As we delve into some topics, uh, the media and sometimes even academia doesn't always get right, and we want you to have the best information available at your fingertips. Tonight, it's the real truth of Islam, and next week, we'll be talking about uh, goddess spirituality and history and archaeology. We'll be discussing the proof of ancient goddess worship and egalitarian societies, because you know, there's still a lot of people out there that think it's all a feminist fantasy. So... We'll, uh, we'll be talking about all of that too, so don't, uh, don't hesitate to tune in and uh, also share the show around. So let's, uh, let's get going tonight. Let me first introduce you to Dr. Rietfeld in case uh, uh, you don't know about him yet, although he is in the archives from shows past, and uh, then we'll jump into the show. Dr. Rietfeld, uh, he received his degree uh, from Claremont uh, Graduate University in Religious Studies in 2006, combining uh, this discipline with um, history and archaeology. His specialties include the history of Christianity in the early medieval and Byzantine periods, New Testament studies and Greco-Roman religions, also at Claremont, Riefeld minored in Islam and Hinduism, focusing on Hindu goddess traditions in the latter field of concentration. Uh, he received both his, his Bachelor of Arts and his Master's of Arts in History at California State University Fullerton in 91 and ninety eight. He's currently teaching at Cal State Fullerton in both the Comparative Religions and History Department. Every Wednesday night, he can be heard on his own radio show entitled "Myth and Legend: History, uh, Myth and Legend: History and Religion" on Passionate Voices Radio. Refold is also an author of numerous publications related to history, religion, and archaeology. Many of his articles published in Sacred History Magazine, and his latest book is titled "London in Flames: The Apocalypse of 1666." He has a passion for studies revolving around Asia Minor, especially focused on the city of Ephesus, and his new book that's out is on Artemis of Ephesus, and James, why don't you jump right in and tell us the title of that book?
0: Oh, <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things where it is called Artemis uh, of uh, Ephesus, or sorry, Artemis of the Ephesians, uh of course... Um, Uh, myths and and sacred landscapes all you have to do is go on the amazon uh type in reeksell r-e-t-v-e-l-d and artemis and the book will show up right away
1: (laughs) yeah and and it's a great book uh 10 years in the making i i've always uh whenever i look at that book i really consider it a work of art uh the beaut it's filled with beautiful color photographs um the the footnotes and stuff are even in a I, I think in a was it was it green or blue ink yes and true. and the ca- captions of the pictures uh uh you know you even have that in in a different color i mean it's a gorgeous gorgeous book
0: oh thank you well and of course the fun part is i spent so much time in ephesus over 8 months of doing research over the years that uh i used my own photos uh, for the uh, the book itself. So those are my own photographs. So somebody said, Hey, you gotta give you know, have got to give rights to these all these photos throughout throughout the book. I'm like, Well, they're my photos, so I guess I should <laughs> uh, there you go.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so photo credit goes to you. And and I sure. know and I know you're too humble to say it, but I really do want my listeners to know because you you deserve this recognition. Uh, Dr. Rietfeld, James, my good friend, is probably uh, the foremost authority on Artemis of Ephesus, probably in the entire world. So, um, if Artemis interests you, and she was one of the great goddesses of antiquity, even Zeus uh you could, there's pictures of Zeus holding uh an image of Artemis to make his power more potent tapping into hers uh you definitely want to have his book in your library because uh he's got stuff in this that book never, not even published anywhere else i don't think uh no, no. yeah well, James, I want to thank you for being on the show tonight and uh, coming back again next week and helping me kick off the year with, uh, um, you know, I guess you could say in a way some controversial subjects in a sense. Um, we hear so much about uh, Islam in the news right now, and uh, certainly uh, so many people uh, out there still don't know much about goddess spirituality, and even the ones who think they do, um, I think a lot of them are misinformed too. So. Um, I appreciate you lending your scholarship uh, this week and next week to, uh, I guess you could say, dispel the information and uh, put things right. Actually,
0: said dispel. Yes, um, absolutely.
1: Good, good. Well, thank you for oh, your definitely. time. I appreciate it. Um, well, and, 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 and,
0: and I'm sorry. Go
1: ahead. No, no, no. You no.
0: <laughs> oh, no all I was going to say as a segue. Uh, as I mentioned before, I spent eight months uh working you know in Ephesus uh trying to put together this book on Artemis of the Ephesians, working with the archaeologists but of course, Ephesus is in Turkey, and so I spent so much of my of my time uh with Muslims, so becoming you know very much living in the household households of Muslims and and uh, getting to know, uh, having very close friends who are Muslims, and of course I even have uh, Muslims within my own family. So much of the information I'll be providing tonight is not only from an academic perspective, but from a personal uh, perspective of, in a sense, living within uh, a Muslim country as well as having uh, people within my household uh, who are Muslims by belief.
1: And, and, and you know, and that is so important because, you know, we see every day so many people out there get their information, you know, third and fourth hand and, uh, you know, and some people have an agenda, I think, even to... Um, put put out the wrong information, you know, uh, because they they want to be fear mongers, you know. They have some sort of investment in, you know, making people afraid, and you know, and, and I think what, and then other people, you know, maybe they really just don't know any better, you know. They're they're not trying to scare people. They're just, uh, you know, repeating things that uh, maybe are uh, untrue or confused or uh, so. You know, I, I appreciate us. Delving into this tonight, and you know maybe we can touch on some of the things that uh, you know maybe you feel are the biggest bits of disinformation out there.
0: Oh yeah. Well, well, well I mean, for first starters, I, w- I would like to mention the fact that uh, uh, you oftentimes hear people say that Islam uh, is a religion of, of peace. That that the, the word Islam uh, means peace. Although sometimes you hear people say, no, 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 it's uh, Islam means submission, and it's used in oftentimes in a very negative sense. But uh, I do want to dispel, in a sense, the meme of, of Islam itself so you understand where people get this idea that, well, Islam is a religion of peace because the all means peace. And the best way to do this is to realize, first of all, uh, Islam rose up within Arabia and, of course, the language of the Quran, the sacred text of Islam, is Arabic. And Arabic is a Semitic language. What do I mean by Semitic language? This language is related not only to Arabic, but also to Hebrew and Syriac and Aramaic uh, and all other kinds of languages, like Akkadian, for example. So they all have the same roots. So when we, when we, for example, in Hebrew, when you when you greet somebody, uh, Karen, what do you say? You say what? You say, shalom,
1: uh, right? Shalom, yeah.
0: Shalom, right? And of yeah. course, in Arabic, it's salam. Now think about that, because what happens is that you have the consonantal sounds of uh, that's equivalent to in our language, S L M, right? And we know these greetings mean peace. So therefore, the word Islam has the same continental ideas of SLM, so the root really does relate to the word peace. So when people say Islam means means peace, it really does, but peace in the sense of peace before Allah, peace before God, in a submissive sense, not a negative sense, a positive sense. And people uh, seem not to get that correct. And, of course, then of course, the word Muslim is related to that. So some people say it means submitters uh, to God, but really it's peaceful submitters to God, in, and not in a forced way, but in a giving open way. I hope that, hope that makes sense. So next time somebody comes up to you and says, well, Islam means peace, if you know anything about language and language roots, it does.
1: So it's really a linguistic thing. Um hence the opening of the show by Emma's Revolution, the song Peace, Salome Shalom.
0: Right. You got it. Exactly. So you okay. yeah, the same ideas crossing over.
1: Right, right, right. So point, it's a so it's a linguistic um interpretation. That's where the connotation comes in
0: that's where the connotation comes in. It okay. is a language connection. And, of course, it's understood by those people who are out there listening, who know Arabic, who obviously will know that there's a relationship in a language sense, but also in the con in the concept sense as well. And, of course, the other thing is, and you're going to hear this a lot, Karen, is people will come up to you and they will say, well, you know, Muslims, they don't worship God. They worship Allah. You know, and of course obviously that must be different, very different from a, a Judeo Christian or even a monotheistic pagan perspective. You know, this is this is Allah, it's not God. And of course I want to clear that up. Uh because the word Allah is the Arabic word for God, literally Al Ilah, which means the God. That's a definite article. It so it means the God. And what most people don't realize is that Arabic Christians use the same word, Allah, in reference to uh, their Christian beliefs. So that's, once again, I want to get rid of that misunderstanding.
1: Yeah, and well, and not to confuse things, but isn't this kind of similar to, I mean, God was called by so many different names. I mean, wasn't there even El and Um, Oh, I I can't think of them now, but they had lots of different names for God in that part of the world.
0: Well, yes. In in fact, uh, the idea of the all-high God, and that moves into another interesting river of of examination because obviously Allah was the all-high God of the city of Mecca previous to the advent of Islam as you know, as introduced by Muhammad. So, you know, Muhammad uh you know obviously makes the connection with Islam itself, but we, we have to realize that Allah is being worshipped with the name Allah as the All High God, not only in in Mecca, but other places throughout Arabia. Yet at the same time, many people in Arabia viewed Uh, Allah as a personification of their localized All-High God, which I think is fascinating. And then what happens is that uh, once a year for an entire month people make a pilgrimage. This is before Islam. Pilgrimage to Mecca, to the Kaaba Stone. Uh, And and of course, in connection to the worship of this All-High God, who of course is Allah, who they connected with their all-high gods within their own tribal localities, which is fascinating. But at the same time, at the same place in Mecca, you had the worship of over 300 other gods according to Muslim tradition before uh, Muhammad came and cleared the place, including, of course, three goddesses.
1: So in a way you're saying, well, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think what I just heard you say is maybe there was a bit of polytheism in a sense, almost from like we sort of syncretize a lot of the different goddesses um and but yet sometimes you know see her as one but sometimes we'll also sort of divide her up and we'll uh see her as Artemis or Isis or Mary or um you know all of, you know all by all her 10,000 different names
0: yes precisely this is of course obviously before the advent of Islam but uh precisely that and then of course this is the time of unbelief according to muslims and anything went at that time. Uh, the most important thing for Muslims is not the fact that people viewed Allah and the multiplicity of gods that were being worshipped in in, in Arabia at that time. It's not a problem. The pro- what their view is is that they had an incorrect view of who Allah or God was, and that with the message of Muhammad. Uh, that was transmitted to him via Gabriel and through various other insights, uh which is believed to be directly from God uh himself, uh that this thing this this that it was um uh it was cleansed, that this misperception, this delusion was cleansed and purified. So so you're not gonna find Muslim scholars or those educated in Islam that will deny the fact that uh that that uh, Allah was mixed up with the polytheism of of before Muhammad and that he is look was looked at as a composite or the ultimate God, high God above the others. But uh the idea is that is that Muhammad had the clear vision of what the truth is. That makes me
1: say I see. Okay, and I want to get into that, but before we do, I I, I, I want to um ask two things. Um we talked about Mecca and I feel like I can't move off of Mecca without talking a little bit about the Kabah Stone. And I know when right. you were helping me research my Sacred Places of Goddess book, and uh, you actually helped me discover the fact that that Ka- the Kabah Stone, which is a meteorite, uh, you actually cited Muslim scholars from antiquity that um, said that that was actually a goddess stone, and it used to glow green. Do you recall that?
0: I'm not recalling that right off off hand right now, but, but I but I, I can cite uh Muslim tradition that the, the Kaaba stone uh you know, its original uh construction was made supposedly uh, uh made by Adam, uh and that uh then when the Great Flood happened, uh only a red mound remained. So maybe that's what you're referring to that uh, was refounded by Abraham, uh, and with his uh, son, Ishmael, they rebuilt it. And then, as a result, of course, uh, you have many other stories that circulate around the Kaaba Stone. Well, and of course, the Kaaba Stone I- itself, uh, the word, people always put, people always want to make things more complicated than it is. For instance, the word Kaaba. So what does it mean, you know? And of course, it really just means cube. So okay. the word common just means cube, and so it, basically it's a large granite structure. I guess some people uh, do take it for granite, and, and it is. <laughs> uh, and uh, and it was, and much of it today, what has survived is cut from the hills near Mecca, and it is positioned. Uh, it is uh, positioned upon a ten-inch marble base. Uh, that uh but uh, you have you know of course you have many stories of polytheism that are connected to uh the Kaaba stone as well in fact, one fascinating one is that uh one of Muhammad's, uh i, I believe it was his um his his, his grandfather or his father no, no it was his grandfather uh there was a story that uh that they were gonna gonna uh, have Muhammad was to be sacrificed uh to uh, a pagan deity at the Kaaba stone, but at just the at the last minute some camels appeared and they were sacrificed in his place. So you have lots of stories of paganism in connection to the, the Kaaba stone. And of course the most you know, the most popular obviously are are the goddesses, you know, connected to that that stone as well? You know that you know all about that, I'm sure.
1: Well, what you're talking about a lot in Aluza and uh, Manat, I think.
0: Right. Right. Um,
1: well, so, yeah, we'll we'll talk about that a little bit because I don't think most people know about the. I think they call them the helping cranes, the goddesses that used to be in the Quran. Is that what you're referring to?
0: Yes. What What happened is is that you have. You have three goddesses that are being worshipped uh, at the cobblestone, among so many others. When I say so many others, I mean everybody kind of brought their uh, god or goddess to the stone, and they had some kind of representation at the cobblestone itself. There's one funny story where a Byzantine tourist uh, during the 500s. Uh, he arrived at the Kaaba stone and he found an image of the Virgin Mary there, laying up against the stone. So everybody kind of brought their deity there, believing that it's connecting to this all-high God of some of some sort. But uh, yeah, Allah had helpers. Be- obviously, this is before the, the the purification under Muhammad, and that's that's uh, Allah, Manat, and Al-Uzza. And they are called the daughters of Allah. And they are mentioned in the Quran. Now, um, just a little bit about these goddesses, just if you're interested, um, a lot she was a moon goddess of North Arabia. And she was originally introduced from Syria, uh, but she also had connections to the moon god of South Arabia, known by various names. Uh, including that of, get this, sin. Interesting. And, of course, the feminine version is Sinai. So I just kind of want to throw that one little bit in. for So
1: so, 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 so so you're saying... Wait, 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 wait. wait. I'm sorry, I have to interrupt. So you're saying Mount Sinai is really named after a goddess, the feminine version of the god Sin.
0: Which, which is the moon god, who is connected to a lot. Yes, that's correct.
1: Okay, had to punctuate the post- that. Okay, <laughs> all right, go ahead.
0: Yeah, I know. I know. You're following this. It's kind of, and like I said, this is very well researched. This is not like you know half a stance, but whatever. Uh, and of course, uh, manat. Uh, the word itself, the root is amada, which means really uh, to determine or to met out. So Manat is believed to be the goddess of, of fortune or fate. And, uh, and then, of course, uh, finally, you have Aluza, and originally also from the realm around Mount Sinai, and uh, she was the goddess of the planet Venus. So so what I find is interesting, although I'm not going to elaborate on this at all, Uh the what happens oftentimes that we find in, in certain reliefs, uh, we find an image of of a lot represented by the half moon, and of course we find images of Ausa represented with a star, and sometimes they they, they coincide together, so be, the crescent well, shape a star shape. But interesting little side so, bar well, there.
1: <laughs> so so, so, so many so, to... so many of the Middle Eastern flags have that star and half moon, so just like the Japanese are flying the symbol of amaterasu the, the people in the Middle East are flying the symbols of the goddesses is that is well, that what I mean, you're
0: well, I'm not saying that I wouldn't never say that I'm just saying it's interesting when it comes to looking at archaeological sites in an evidential sense. But be, beyond that, you know, sometimes you you know, it's it's hard to make direct connections, but I, I just I just found that very interesting. But when it yeah. comes to Allah, Manat, and al uh you know, they are mentioned in Quran. And so to be on very strong fair grounds, I actually have the Quran here and I'm I'm flipping it open here. So you can you can I'm going to read for from, from from myself here, Surah 53 from the Quran, 19 to 23. It says concerning these goddesses, when the apostles of God, sorry, when the apostle of God was was sent, God revealed unto him concerning them the following. Have ye seen Lot and auza and another, the third goddess Manat? What for you? the male sex, and for him, the female? Behold, such would be indeed a division most unfair. These are nothing but names which you have devised, you and your fathers, for which Allah has sent down no authority whatsoever. They follow nothing but conjecture and what their own souls desire, even though there has already come to them the guidance from their Lord. So this is, of course, the verse... Uh, saying that one is not to worship these three goddesses. But what I want to mention is that according to the Hadith, according to the oral, uh, uh sayings and ideas and traditions of Islam, there's a little bit more to the story. You see, Mecca did not want, Allah, sorry, sorry, did not want to hear uh, Muhammad's. Uh, of Allah whatsoever they they were they're, they're, you know so what happened was one story, according to the hadith, is that for a short period of time Muhammad wavered just a little bit to permit people to uh, include these goddesses with his perceived worship of Allah, and then he had a revelation that revealed that this was not righteous, and he retracted it. And as a result, uh, the city became, uh, people within the city became extremely angry, and it was one of the reasons why he was kicked out of Mecca and fled to Medina. I just want to throw that one in just a little bit. So for a short period of time, according to the the tradition, according to the Hadith, so this is Muslim tradition, there was a moment where, Muhammad seemed to include them, or at least allowed for people to follow them for a short while. Then he changed his mind, and then, of course, this verse appears and ends up in the Quran.
1: So does that mean the goddesses existed in Islam when they were still polytheists, or or no?
0: So what this means is is that there is this, how do I say this, there's this, sensibility that um uh that there are there was a period of time when um in in uh, in Mecca where there was a polytheistic like uh atmosphere even when it comes to Islam which later becomes of course purified out
1: so do most make. um do, do you think most muslims even know that
0: well they they well if, we if they've read the hadith if they ha- if they have read gone through this this is but this is not really common knowledge but yeah it's, it's it's in the it's in the legitimate sayings of that are connected to Muhammad and his his traditions and his ideas and so forth so the answer is uh, they they should know this but like I said it was only a short period of time
1: what I mean by the
0: hadith you see there are the are two um, Basically, there's two, uh, I guess, literature, two uh, sacred uh, bits of literature that are are connected to to, to, uh, Islam. You have, of course, you have, we all know, obviously, the Quran. But what a lot of people don't know is that there's another body of information uh, that connects with Islam, and that's called the Sunnah. And the Sunnah basically refers to the sayings and actions and uh, approvals of the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, I guess like the Quran, the Sunnah is believed to be inspired by revelation from God. Uh, But unlike the Quran, uh, it is not considered the the direct, literal word of God. Uh, At the same time, um, the Sunnah has different parts. And you have that which is called the Hadith. The hadith are verbal reports or traditions of Muhammad that are collected in the sunnah. And and each hadith has two parts. First, you have the chain of transmitters, which provide a list of those who reported any particular tradition back to the original eyewitness. And then you have the specific story reported. And so, so in various hadiths, you do have reference to this action by Muhammad, but you also have the fact that that he changed uh, his mind, or the best way to say that he had a revelation, which revealed that these goddesses are not to be permitted to be worshipped. Okay. But at first he allowed them to be so. Yes.
1: So two questions: um, Does does the feminine, uh, sacred feminine, exist as we might recognize it in the Koran, or Islam, and who made Muhammad the go-to guy that everybody decided they were going to listen to?
0: Oh, wow. Um, I, I think, well, that's... Uh, maybe I should or answer it, the is, first question and then work our way to the other question, if that, if that makes any sense. Um, uh, first of all, I, I do have to say that uh, when, when Muhammad first was believed to have his 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 uh, uh, revelation uh, from from God, uh, nobody believed him. I mean, really, I mean, nobody uh, really believed him. He was just he's kind of a he's kind of a I'm not gonna not say he was a nobody, but uh, I mean, he had his revelation when he was forty in the year six ten. Uh, and of course, he was at the cave of Hira uh, near Mecca. And this is when Gabriel appeared to him and he had this vision. And then, of course, he, he he tells you know he tells a few people. The, the only person who really believed in it, in him uh, was uh, his wife. <laughs> and then uh, a little bit later, uh, Ali and his Christian cousin, which is an interesting point in and of itself. And then. Not many people for a long period of time, so you know then what happened is that he arrived uh in mecca uh and he, and uh really according to the hadith, now when I say the word hadith, it makes more sense, so I'm not quoting the Quran, so but I'm referring to the sayings that are, and deeds of Muhammad that is uh, connected to his life that's still considered inspired. you know what Muhammad did uh to spread his beliefs in Mecca, he did good acts. Uh, he did charity acts. He helped people. He took care of orphans and widows and, and the hungry. And out of these love acts, people slowly but surely converted over to his belief. And he made people in his town so angry because they felt guilty because he was, because he was getting people to give, and they didn't want to give. You know, they didn't want to give their money away. And so that upset. So it, so eventually, when Muhammad also uh, seemed to uh, not allow the compromise, for example, the three goddess compromise to go through, uh, he became a pariah, and he was kicked out. Uh, and he fled uh, to Medina. And, of course, he was invited to Medina to take care of the problems there because there was fights and disputes uh, between the three Arab tribes of Medina with other groups, and um, so he went there, and he tried to settle matters with his idea, and his belief was that uh, everybody should be one. Uh, There should be no more tribal warfare and disputes amongst themselves, but that everybody should be under uh, one Ummah, which is, of course, the Islamic community. It's also known as Dar al-Islam, or the abode of peace or submission, And uh, the the fact of the matter is there was so much bloodshed going on between various tribes and tribal alliances and, and loyalties going back and forth. It was pretty bad. So he believed that Islam was a way to bring people together and in peace. So you see really it is the idea of the abode of peace as opposed to the abode of war where you have these tribal groups uh, going on and on, is one of those things where they had, uh, when it came to blood feuds, if you kill somebody's brother, they'll have to kill your brother back, and so forth and so on, for generation after generation. He saw this, and he wanted this to stop. But he also realized that there were certain ways that he can centralize the, the his authority, and of course, that obviously was Mecca. Remember I told you that Mecca... Was where the Kaaba stone was, where where everybody uh, would make pilgrimages there because they saw Allah as the All-High God. Remember,
1: when I told you right, that, right,
0: right, right. So, 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 and, they would, and what happened was, is that they would all go there during one particular month, and that month was a month of peace. But also during that month, this is throughout uh, northern Arabia. Also during that month, it was a period of time where everybody did markets. And it was it was a big market town. So everybody bought their, their trades, goods, and services. And so it was a time of peace. Uh, it was a, it, when it came to warfare, it was haram, which is forbidden. All warfare was forbidden. And he thought to him, I'm sure, from a secular perspective, I'm, I'm bringing this up, it's a great idea to centralize the Arab people on Medina, sorry, 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 sorry on Mecca, and and create this idea of a pilgrimage to Mecca that's centralized with an all-high God by the name of Allah, and having the idea that there's no more tribes, that we're all one people that are peacefully submitted before the all-high God, and that all bloodshed amongst them should cease. You you know, I'm not just saying this because uh, it sounds good, but I'm saying this for a reason that's really relevant to 2015. You hear stories about Muslims fighting Muslims. This is forbidden in Islam, because it's supposed to be the abode of peaceful submission under the Ummah. So groups like Daesh, also known as ISIL, they are not only in, in direct contradiction to Islam, but some of the, the some of the main central tenets of Islam itself when, it, when, it, when when there's fighting between Muslim and Muslim we'll talk about the people of the book later. I just want to make this clear that 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 Muhammad stressed the idea that there's no more tribal warfare, the old polytheism is gone. we're all centered upon one all high God that is Allah, there is no other, and that that uh, we are all one community, the Ummah is, is, a, is a place of peaceful submission and no bloodshed amongst ourselves, and that is a beautiful concept. So you can see where people who have been fighting for generations in Arabia for hundreds of years, these various tribes, will go, hey, you know, you know, it's almost the great appeal upward, <laughs> you know, you know, higher authority to make
1: peace, right. Right, right. That makes total sense. Okay, and 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 we'll talk more about Daesh and ISIL and and all of all of that later on. Uh, but I, I want to make sure we before we you know get into all of that. I want to make sure we still cover the 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 feminine aspect. Uh, yeah. You know, um, because I mean, yeah. Muhammad had a pretty powerful wife. I mean, it seems like yeah. Islam didn't always subjugate their women. Obviously.
0: Well, and, and that's, another, that's another interesting point. Now, where do we get these ideas of Muhammad and his relationship with Khadijah? We do find reference to this in the Quran, but I also want to mention that uh, it is found all over the Hadith. So, you know, the Sunnah has so much that goes into uh, who uh, Khadijah uh, is, I mean, I have to say this, is that uh, when you look at her, uh, perceptions of Islam in regards to women uh, really change. Uh, I mean, first of all, she was in no way submissive or repressed. Uh, And before she met uh, Muhammad, and even during the time, uh, she was a wealthy, independent businesswoman, And did you know that she was in charge of a caravan business employing many men below her to work as her sales representatives? So here you have a woman that's in charge of many men. She's a boss. And, uh, in fact, her business was so successful that uh, she rivaled uh, many of the other uh, caravan traders in Mecca. Uh, And I have to tell you, as, as a person, Khadija was very kind hearted and, and she was generous. She often giving her surplus to the sick, poor, and, and needy. And she was always there to help her relatives too. But uh, in fact if someone could not afford marriage, uh she often uh, you know gave them money to make it possible. But uh, you know, this is kind of this is a love story. She was lonely. She was very lonely, you know, here's this wealthy widow, very very, very lonely. And so she wanted to, wanted somebody. Now, um, now, of course, her husband died years before. And she was about 40 years of age when she met da, 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 the young Muhammad. <laughs> uh, she, she had already crazy. had two sons and a daughter from her previous marriage, by the way, which is interesting. So here, Muhammad is going, in Khadija, he's going to fall in love with a little... Woman that's already has kids, and she's 40 yeah. years of age. She's a cougar. She, <laughs> right, and she and she's wealthy. She, I mean, you know, she's she's a wealthy, independent woman. I mean, this is this goes contrary to everything we've been learning about Islam. You know, because it's not that. In fact, here it is, here it is. Khadija was looking for a, a trustworthy agent to travel to Syria, and so her relative Abu Talib. Recommend, recommended that she give her distant relative, yes, a relative, Muhammad, the job, you know, as a great sales rep. Because you know, he was known as the one who is Amin or the trustworthy one. So the two the fifth, they had a close working relationship. And they they fell in love. They fell in love. So she proposed to Muhammad. <laughs> she proposed to Muhammad. And he joyfully accepted. So now, the five year old Muhammad married a woman, uh, well, forty years of age.
1: But James, and was they she had an six exception? Together. Was, huh? was she an was she an exception or were there a lot of women who were, you know, doing their own thing? I mean we know in Egypt women. Was, a lot uh, of uh, you know, you know, in Egypt, women could divorce And they had their own property and businesses And, you know, they weren't, you know uh, Oppressed like women in Greece, for instance um, So, I mean, uh, were women of uh, Were Muslim women better off In in that well, time period?
0: Well, okay, what, what I, what I want to say is is that, um, is that women did well Extremely well in early Islam They benefited they did. They're like, well, how can that be so? Because, you know, um, you know, you read the Quran, you see certain areas that seem uh, problematic, like a man has is is one, uh, for example, or, or you have the idea of the reading of, will, of a will, you have one man to be uh, the the observer or the eyewitness, and if you can't find one man then two women should, should suffice. To you know, to you know, to be there as witnesses for for a uh, for a will, and you go, oh, that's totally unfair. Yes, it is unfair. However, this is this this is the six hundreds for heaven's sake, and a lot of cultures, no women, no women at all would be allowed to be in attendance to, to 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 support a you know to, for eyewitness of a will. What I'm saying is, women you know didn't always do very well, but Islam really did help. More women than hurt them within the context of the 600s. Does that make sense? They are doing yeah. a lot better in the 600s than as a result of Islam. I mean, and I'll, I'll, just just to clear this one up too, is that Muhammad had only one wife until Khadija died. So 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 he didn't have multiple wives and until then. She died of a high fever at 65 years of age. But I do want to say this, this one quote uh, for, that Muhammad said about her, uh, and I think this is a great testimony, and I wish everybody would hear this. Muhammad told all, quote, about Khadijah. She believed in me when all others disbelieved. She held me truthful when others called me a liar. She sheltered me when others abandoned me. She comforted me when others shunned me. And Allah granted me children by her While depriving me of children by any other woman Unquote mm-hmm. He also said this He said the best women in all the world Are four The Virgin Mary Aisha, the wife of Pharaoh Khadija Mother of the believers And Fatima, daughter of Muhammad I mean he loved her mm-hmm. So, so, so and, and of course If you take a look at the Hadith you know the way Muhammad treated his wife is the way people are supposed to treat their wives within Islam. And look who she was. So somebody is not reading the Hadith very well or the Quran.
1: So, so do we have here the same thing we have in Christianity or in Catholicism? You know, in Catholicism we call them cafeteria Catholics. You know, I mean, we see Christians all the time that cherry pick things uh, to, uh, you know, promote their own agenda. Is it the? I mean, is Islam just, you know, fall fell victim to the very same thing Christians do?
0: Yes. What will happen is that Islam spreads. The culture, the various cultures that it comes upon, starts to accommodate uh, the beliefs. That they that they agree with that fits with their localized culture, and weed out uh, the beliefs or ideas that do not, and that's exactly you know what happens. So you have you have this weed now. So yeah, this cherry picking, but also uh, intentional, intentionally leaving you know intentionally leaving out certain sections. You know they're not going to be right
1: you know, because I mean because you know we culture. always. Yeah. I mean, we always say if Jesus came back, you know, he wouldn't be happy with what how Christianity looks today. Would uh, well, could we say the same thing about Muhammad?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, he'd be he'd be he'd be extremely upset.
1: Yeah. You know, you know, um,
0: you know, he he would he would. I mean, here here is a person who is such a kind hearted person who believes in giving to other people, and you know, I mean, yeah, he, you know, I mean, he, he goes he goes very much against. The personality that appears uh, in the oral sayings and traditions of Muhammad, it goes very much against uh, who he is, if you read it all. But of course, you have to read the Quran and the Sunnah within context, because you can make something say anything you want if it's taken out of context
1: right right, right well um a, a couple things I wanted to ask you. I know we had some th- things that we were going we wanted to go over, but i, I wanted to ask you a few things and if if it's not going to lead us too far astray um uh if if there may be sort of quick answers um you know this this whole idea of i I, I know it's always confused me this conflict between um you know Judaism and uh islam you know I, I, i'm I'm always under the I'm under the impression that they basically have the same father abraham right uh they're right. they're basic you know his sons or the Forefathers of Islam and Judaism, uh, and and they they uh, what maybe have different mothers but the same father but yet you know the Jews and the you know and and uh, you know the the other folks they uh, you know we have this constant uh, war between them but in the beginning they were brothers so how how do brothers become you know, these mortal enemies uh, You know can you? Is that a quick explanation?
0: Um, well, I mean uh, for, for, I have to say this I'm to just, you know, It's not a quick answer We're going to try to answer it in a very brief way uh, At first, many people believed That Muhammad was becoming Jewish And at first, as opposed to praying towards Mecca He prayed towards Jerusalem and uh, when it comes to both Judaism as well as Christianity, uh, he believed himself to be the continuation of both those beliefs, and that he is the final seal, uh, he is the final revealer, he is the, he is the, he is the final prophet that, that fulfills both Judaism and Christianity. Uh, and, and so you have that idea. And, of course, obviously Jesus is with, big time within in, in Islam. And uh, what will happen is politics. And the politics happens with with, uh, with a caliph that follows after uh, Muhammad, where, where, where you know, what do you do with subjugated peoples? Well, let's go ahead uh, and make them, you know, if they want to follow their own religion, well, let's go ahead and make them, you know, pay a tax to stay with the religion. And, of course, that's called the Jizwa, and the Jizwa tax is applied to Jews as well as to Christians, but the long and short of it is, is that really, in reality, uh, Jews and Muslims got along famously, very well, all the way up until the 20th century. <laughs> so, really? it's, it's, it's yeah, okay. more of a conflict between Muslims and Christians, uh, because uh, there's fights between, obviously, you have Arabia, uh, the, the Muslims coming out of Arabia And they're fighting the Byzantine Empire Which is a Christian Empire And so politics gets mixed with religion in many ways But no, no, no Jews and, you know, Did you know the first thing that Umar did When he arrived in uh, Jerusalem uh, After kicking out the the Christian Byzantines You know the first thing he did He, he called out to the Jews of Galilee Living in Tiberias and Sepphoris And says, come back Come back and come back to Jerusalem because they're they, were, they were kicked out. Christians didn't allow Jews to settle in Jerusalem. He called them back, so the, the resettlement of the Jews uh, came about in the six hundreds. But guess what? They get kicked out again with the first Crusade when the Christians come. So and and they die alongside the Muslims during the, the sack of Jerusalem under the crusade. So and then of course there's the story of Muslims and Jews. In Spain, they, I mean, you know, when, when the Muslims came, uh, the first thing they stopped was the Visigothic repression of the Jews, and the Jews, getting so much freedom and power, they moved up to the top uh, top levels of government, to the point of uh, the flowering of Jewish literature and ideals happened under Muslim Spain, you know, the Kabbalah, Moses' Maimonides, And when did everything fall apart? Well, in When Spain was under the Reconquista When the Christians came And it pushed the Muslims out The Jews suffered as well And they got expelled in 1492 And guess what happens in 1492 Who saves the day The Ottoman Muslims come Takes them Back to the Ottoman Empire And says okay we'll save you Because nobody wants you
1: so, so 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 this idea I I so this idea I think that most of us are under the impression that Jews and Muslims have been fighting forever is just not true. Uh there's been more more Churches agitation like
0: fighting,
1: more agitation from the Christians but yes. you know maybe because we're more um uh, you know we we have more uh, you know we we have uh, you know we, we've just heard the Christian propaganda.
0: Right. We, we've heard the Christian propaganda and, uh, no, I mean the long and the short of it is is that Arabs, you know, you know didn't, well, I mean, you, you have this, this, yeah, you have Jews and Muslims getting along uh, uh, very well throughout history. Are there exceptions? Yes. There are always exceptions to every rule. But for the most part, and I'll just tell out, uh, like 85% of the time, Jews and Muslims got along and in many cases, it was the Jews that were scared out of their wits when the Christians came, because they, they feared uh, persecution. I do have to say, though, as an added little bit, is that Christians that are considered non-Orthodox, uh, like the Muslims, better, too. <laughs> so Because uh, when, uh, when Islam spread throughout the 600s, uh, in many cases, right before this, the Byzantine Empire was persecuting those people who didn't believe in the same Orthodox Christianity that they, they did. And we're talking bloodshed and everything else. So the Muslims came. Many of these areas uh, they're known as Monophysite Christians. Many of these, these, these places where the Muslims came, uh, the Christians opened up their gates to let the Muslims in because they're being, they're, they're being persecuted constantly by the Byzantine Christian emperors. So I know, it's a strange irony of history, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and
1: and, 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 well, and I think we can't forget to mention that, um, you know, the Muslim people had a a flourishing, thriving society. I mean, they were more advanced than, uh, and and, and, I mean, I, I get my timelines mixed up, but when the Christians were in the Dark Ages, I mean, weren't they celebrating um, you know, uh, high standards of living and education, and and you yes. know all of that.
0: Yes, yeah, yeah, oh, very true. You have the Umayyads uh, that were based uh, in Damascus, flourishing uh, civilization that cultivated uh, saving much of of the knowledge of antiquity. People forget this. This continued under the first part of the Abbasids as well, where they created this great library, like the Library of Alexandria called the House of Wisdom and, uh, and of course that brought so much, and of course the, the Muslims then continued on took Spain in 711 and they and, and while the Muslims were in Spain it flourished, it was a garden it's so funny uh, the other day I was reading through a treatise uh, it, it, was that it describes what happens after the, the Reconquista when the Christians had pushed the Muslims out of um out of Spain, they talked about everything breaking down. The infrastructure was breaking down, the roads were breaking down, the ac- you know, the aqueducts were no longer flow with water, everything was turning dry and, 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 and you know, dirt everywhere and, and and uh also talking about the fact that the wide streets are now being filled with little hovels, little Little buildings, people are literally building the streets. So the Christians are when they, you know, the the, the, the Spanish Christians when they arrived, uh, they they brought the they, it's almost like barbarians taking over again of the Reconquista. And of course, a lot of these people are illiterate, while most of Spain had a very high literacy and education and so forth. So yeah, so we've been kind of told a lie. Yeah,
1: <laughs> Just a little yeah, bit.
0: Uh, yeah. It, it, the whole history. Uh, medieval Spain will tell you that, or demonstrate that. Was it all was it all wonderful? No, it wasn't all wonderful. But but the exceptions are far fewer, and uh, and, and how people got along. Like I said, all you have to take is look, take a look at Jewish literature, the flourishing uh, of the Jewish communities uh, in Spain to realize well things must have been pretty good. In fact, there's stories where you had this Ahab, who is a Jew. Who uh, was fighting as a general for the the Spanish Muslims against the christians yeah yeah. So, yeah
1: yeah i I yeah so it's uh yeah we so we shouldn't uh fall victim to the misinformation that uh you know the Muslims are all barbarians, and Jews and Muslims have always been fighting one another and you know the Christians right. are the good ones you know I, I mean because you know Christianity makes it out like oh you know they that we go off on these crusades and uh is as, as if the, you know we have the moral authority with these Crusades and things you know and um right. and 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 we forget that uh you know we might have been trying to conquer a people that was more advanced and uh, more peaceful than the Christians.
0: I, I think the majority of medieval scholars will agree with me, as well as scholars of Islam. They, you know, especially the Middle Ages, will agree that the civilizations under Islam during the during the Middle Ages was far more advanced than the other ones. I mean, even the Mughals, the Muslim Mughals of India, right? You know, in the 15, you know, 1600s, they were very advanced as well. So they were the light well well people are are throwing garbage on people's heads in the streets of london uh you know you had people that you know you had wide streets and and advanced you know plumbing and and uh in, in places like you know uh, Granada and other you know i mean yeah, so the answer is it's kind of sad yeah. to say that uh, uh it was a lesser advanced civilization that took over a more advanced civilization. We also have to be fair. We have to realize history is about various ebbs and flows and cycles. And so, uh, you know, and of course that oftentimes coincides uh, with people's, you know, how people understand or perceive their beliefs as well. So we have to be very careful about that too.
1: Right, So right.
0: you're going to have a period of time where, where Muslims uh, are, are, are more uh, more liberal, I think to use the word liberal, uh, more spirit of the law than letter of the law, and, you know there' a time where more Christians are more letter of the law than the spirit of the law, and then you have periods of time when people switch. One thing I do notice is that whenever you have uh you, whenever you have uh, a group of of any of, people of any belief I'll give an example uh, in spain in in Spain when it came to jews sorry, when it came to Christians and Muslims. They still kind of got along. So much was based upon politics uh, as opposed to religion. But as soon as you get zealots like the Almoravids, when they arrive, and they start massacring everybody, uh, you know, and they they call themselves Muslims, it's at that point where the Christians will use these massacres as a point of rhetoric to work against the Muslims for the Reconquista. So. In a sense, it's the fundamentalist radicals that hurt everyone because, because people will use it. On one hand, it will make those people of the same religion you know, constantly defend themselves. And on the other hand, it will give those uh, people who are looking for some political advantage the rhetoric necessary, uh, the enemy necessary, the scapegoat necessary to, to work some political aim.
1: Well, we see that In happening right now. I mean that's happening exactly. right now. Um, right. So um, all right, so all right. If um, Muhammad wanted the Muslims to be a peaceful people and they valued peace, um, when
0: did
1: the uh, when did the split happen? Because you have what is it, the Sunnis and the Shias? Yeah, well, that's that's a whole other.
0: That's oh yeah, that's a. A is, is, that of, a, of, is, is, is that a
1: quick answer or is it too involved
0: well i mean no, I mean it's, it's it's a it's a it's a good question uh the point of the matter is that you have um uh, how do i put this you have, you have fights between uh um the, the people who are connected to ali and uh um mm. how do i put this okay i will I'll, I'll try to put it briefly i'll try to figure out some way to talk about this in a fast as possible uh, Basically what happened Is that After Muhammad's death uh, Abu Bakr uh, Who was his father-in-law Was chosen to succeed him uh, And uh, Instead of uh, A certain Ali And uh, Shiites claim though That Muhammad designated Ali as his Rightful successor before He died and so a faction arose around him called the Shia, which means party. <laughs> and uh, uh, Ali, though, eventually did become caliph. Uh, when was I? I think it was 656. But but, uh, but uh, because uh, you know he agreed to arbitration uh, with the Umayyads by the name of Muawiyah. Uh, but uh, he did. But then he was murdered uh by by when he was murdered, uh obviously there's they, they they thought that those people uh who are connected to the line of Abu Bakr uh were the ones who murdered him uh and it goes from there. I can even go a little bit further on this one. I I'll, I'll just say this is that Ali is from the family of Muhammad but Abu Bakr as leader of the Muslims was was of the family only by marriage or proxy. So it's almost a division between the idea that do uh, you go with the family of Muhammad in leadership, or do you go with the idea of a designated leader in in succession that's appointed that doesn't have to come from exactly the same bloodline. Much like the idea within Christianity where there's a division between those people who believe that leadership of Christianity should go through the family of Jesus, i.e. James the Righteous, or it should be designated by a, you know, by appointment, i.e. the Apostle Peter in Rome. See that? So it's almost the same kind of idea of the division. So between Jewish Christianity and Pauline Christianity, there's that same sensibility between a uh, fight between the family uh,
1: of Muhammad
0: versus those people who, who are believed to be leadership by appointment. Does that make sense?
1: So, yeah, yeah. So basically we have, a, we have Sunnis and Shias because there was political rivalry after Muhammad dies. Who was going to lead Islam? Um,
0: yep. the family who, who or, yeah, the family or by appointment,
1: yes. Family well, or appointment. So, so now today, though. Today, though. I'm sorry. So, say it again. I, I think I spoke over you. Yes,
0: well, the other thing is is that Shiites pray three times a day because that's what the what the the Quran seems to indicate, but the, the Sunni pray five times a day because the Hadith seems to show that. So there's there's a difference when it comes to prayer. Uh, there's also a difference. Uh, the Shiites uh, very much have—I uh, don't like to use the word saints—but they do have uh, saint-like individuals that are revered uh, amongst the Shiites. There's, there's quite a few divisions, but uh, well, a lot of it has to do with just this fracture, and you know, et, you know, also ethnicity gets involved in politics.
1: Yeah. It's so, would, so
0: was a fight between family and appointments.
1: So in general, okay, in general, I mean, well, we know there's no absolutes. Um, if, uh, when you compare, like, say, Iran or Saudi Arabia, um, who is who? Who's the Shiites? Who's the Sunnis? And is one more conservative than the other? Or do they both have their conservative, moderate, and liberal factions?
0: They all have, they all, we each have their conservative, moderate, and liberal factions. Uh, and it's it's, it's kind of like, uh, you know,
1: Protestants
0: and Catholics and Orthodox, uh, you're going to have the same thing. So sometimes we almost have to uh, judge people as individuals when it comes to their beliefs, as opposed to a generality. And that's I know it's rather unfortunate. It's hard to do that with everybody, but uh, uh, yeah, you're going to you're going you're gonna to have you know, of course, obviously you have moderate Shiites uh, as well, quite a few of them too. I have I have a friend who's one. So um, yeah, <laughs> answer that question. Uh but also I, I do want to uh make sure that uh we realize that uh uh that you know Islam does have uh fundamentals of beliefs. So, you know, there, there's and of course the interesting thing is if if Muslims did all their fundamentals, you know, maybe the world would be a better place. Um uh I, I mentioned I want to mention briefly you've heard of the five pillars of Islam. I just want to bring up few of them quickly because there's a reason why. Uh you have the declaration of faith as one pillar, that's number one. You have daily prayer uh is another one. Uh you but uh and you have of course the, the the feast of Ramadan. Uh that's another one itself. So. And you have the pilgrimage to Mecca. But we well, what I want to talk about is you have the zakat. And what I want to bring up the zakat is that it's the belief in nearly all and it was, it's a belief that it is a religious duty for every Muslim to give a portion of his or her wealth to the needy each year. And it has been estimated that everybody followed this. Uh, usually it, it's a portion of their unused wealth calculated annually. Everybody did this. Um, there will be no poor people in the Middle East today.
1: Well, yeah. You think about all of the sheiks who own, you know, who uh, take control of all of the oil.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. And, and this follows exactly Muhammad wanted. Remember, he he was focused in in Mecca upon helping people and, and giving them things. Well, I think it's great that within the five pillars, he sneaks that one in the zakat. And yet, so many Muslims do not follow that. And, right. Uh, Middle East would be a, a great place If we had more observant Muslims Who held to this idea It's a great idea
1: Well likewise <laughs> if we had more Christians Who were like Jesus <laughs> You know precisely, Right Yeah, So yeah.
0: Uh, we're fallible people uh, Trying to uh, You know trying to follow What, what seems to be impossible uh, uh, Ethical rules And uh, we do our best But unfortunately oftentimes religion becomes simply a a political football that people use at their convenience uh, to to push forward whatever their agenda is.
1: So before Islam, what were places like Arabia like? Were they just, um, you know, were they a wilderness or, you know, did did, uh, Islam sort of tame Arabia and make it a better place or the opposite?
0: Well, I mean... I I guess the best way to describe this is that uh is there, it depends on where in Arabia. Uh you in the northern section, of course you have a lot of, of nomadic Bedouin peoples. Uh but but you also have many uh, trading cities and they, they thrive along the coasts and even in the interior, you <laughs> you know, wherever water was uh, was available. Uh so uh, but I have to say that life was extremely tough. Much of Arabia is indeed a desert. And uh, these are Bedouin people. And so they, they had a code of ethics that was known as the Marwala Code. Uh, this is the Arabic Code of Virtue. And it was this uh, tribal uh, culture that uh, was oftentimes very divisive. So so you had constant warfare going on, uh, blood feuds. But you also had people who had their localized gods. And they paraded their localized gods, uh, oftentimes, uh non representative by the way, uh before their various uh armies and they'd fight others. So basically in these various wars it's your God is fighting my God. Sounds you know very Israelite like, that's the way it was. And uh and of course the idea of appealing to a higher God that encompasses them all was a was, was a great idea. You know, whether it's divine or not, it's still a great idea. But yeah, life was horrible in Arabia. And life was a lot better. I have to say this, a lot better for everyone. Not the best. I'm not saying it was a paradise, but it was a lot better, better than it was before Muhammad's uh, transformation. So, I mean, this ended the blood feuds and the constant tribal warfare uh, that uh, that he experienced. I mean, uh, during the early part of his life, uh, he he was actually uh, asked uh to uh they would send their young out to live in the desert with the Bedouin to, to make them stronger. And he was he he observed things that he liked and he observed things that he didn't like. And uh but uh the, the the idea of revenge and the concept eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth uh was was just was just too much for him. He also observed that all in all the sacred places uh within the desert they were considered haram, which means any violence was forbidden, and usually, usually, uh, these uh, places that were connected to haram were springs, you know, which is you know, like an oasis. So that was great. That means that if you go to an oasis, it was considered haram, forbidden to do any violence, and so therefore you can drink water in peace, and you can, you know, you know, worry about being killed. <laughs> When well, you leave you the know, oasis. But, but once you're there, it's Haram, and they usually have, like, a local image of the god there uh, watching and uh, to make sure. And, and at places like this, people make pacts and truces, and, and uh, you know, it was, it was a, and so he thought, hey, let's do this in Mecca. And they got the ultimate place. So, I mean, it really makes logical sense. Like I said, when, if you're secular uh you know from a secular perspective it's a it's genius it really is a mark of genius right Probably, right obviously religious perspective of course it's revealed but yeah idea. um
1: so um so you know the right wing is you know here in the United states is famous for you know, um, doing this fear-mongering with Muslims and, you know, the Sharia law thing. You know, they got people thinking that, you know, we have to worry about Sharia law. Will you explain why that is such a bogus, um, you know, horrible thing to be, um, you know, getting people all worked up about? Well,
0: I I mean, do we get worked up when we go to the supermarket and we see kosher food? No. No. Well, should we get worked out if we see halal food? No, no. But you know, I think
1: they're they're talking about the, uh, you know how you know uh, how I I don't know maybe maybe it's the female genital mutilation maybe it's the uh, okay. you know a yeah. woman a woman can be stoned to death if she's raped you know these those okay. sort of extreme things that we hear.
0: Right, right. So yeah, yeah. Of course, here's when it comes to genital mutilation, uh, it's not in the Quran. It's not in the Hadith. It's it's not anywhere. So that's that's an example of localized cultural ideas being incorporated into what is perceived as Islam, what is not there. In fact, I'm going to go a little bit further. In Africa today, there's more female genital mutilation going on in countries that are perceived as Christian countries in Africa than in those countries perceived as Muslims. So it's a cultural tribal thing and not an Islam thing. When it comes to throwing rocks, what, Hadith talks about that one, you know? (laughs) Once again, you have localized beliefs and perspectives and culture that that, that, that since this culture or this heritage or this group of people always did that, and since they believe in this religion, therefore this religion condones this behavior. But it's a fallacy of logic. So,
1: well, cool well, well, I mean, and also too, I mean, just from a practical perspective, I mean, if you, if there's a Muslim community in the United States, um, that doesn't, you know, it, it, well, you know, this, you know, this frenzy that the that the right wing sort of whips up, you know, sort of makes, I think the uninformed imagine that, you know, these horrible things are going on in their community that, you know, women are maybe potentially at threat of being stoned to death. But I mean, we have laws that would prevent stuff like that from happening. Right. I mean, if a Muslim community couldn't take a woman out and stone her because everybody who threw the stones would be arrested and go to, go to jail. I mean, am I oversimplifying this or, or what? Well,
0: well, first of all, you know, a Muslim community identified as Muslim. what if, if, we're back to the, the fallacy, they are ethnically this particular group that believes this, and they will use their belief uh, or Islam uh, to condone, support these ideas. But if you're taking a look at the actual text itself, and uh, and the and the and the behaviors of Muhammad, uh, these be. This is not condoned. It's not supported. So it, it is. I mean, it, I don't know how to say this. It's ridiculous. But that's <laughs> well, so so first
1: of all, it's it's not even. It, so first of all, they're they're con, they're uh, misconstruing the teachings of Islam to begin with.
0: Right. Let us say, say, Islam is perfect. Absolutely not. No, Islam is, as, you know, from a from a scholastic perspective, uh, it has problematic aspect as much as any other religion uh even read into it and, and but but yeah ultimately we have to t- you know being like i said uh having spent so much time uh with Muslims, which I think helps having people connected uh to Islam within my very family, um, I can tell you you know yeah we we celebrated thanksgiving together, we celebrated christmas together. We talked about Jesus together, and, and, you know, and you know, all these different ideas. It's like, what? Yes. So I think that, um, you know, I, I, you know, it's so funny. People, I have some people, say, well, Muslims don't celebrate Christmas. I'm like, what? The way that I just do. <laughs> what did they just do? You know, I'm saying, no, this is ridiculous. So, well,
1: well, we'll um, talk a little bit about. I mean, I've always heard. I mean, I haven't read the Quran, but I've I've always read that there's more about Mary in the Quran than there is in the Bible. So I, I mean, I think the Muslims tend is. to do 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 good by Jesus and Mary, don't they? Yeah,
0: well, well yeah. Jesus and Mary are, are big time. Uh, I mean, throughout the Quran, you have entire hadiths that are dedicated to to Mary. I mean, you heard me quote uh the virgin mary we call knew no, it called the Virgin Mary as being deemed as one of the four top women of islam, so uh, i mean like i said there's there's so much that that we don't you know that's that's not known uh in many ways, but I do have to say yeah an example here uh when it comes to Mary, let's see here, oh you're gonna love this one <laughs> I want to read this this is great. Uh, You know, when it comes to Jesus, I'll bring him Mary because this is so great. Uh, Jesus, according to Islam, is a prophet and messenger of God. And, uh, of course, uh, Islam teaches that uh, Jesus called to the oneness of God. Uh, Like Adam, Jesus is a special creation of God. But according to the Quran, unlike Adam, Jesus has no sin. So according to Islam, Jesus is sinless. And according to Islam... Jesus is called directly throughout the Quran, the Messiah. He is called the Messiah, the Anointed One, and, uh, which I think is interesting. Uh, also, accordingly, uh, Jesus, uh, he is, uh, he is uh, not crucified, but he is assumed into heaven. He goes right to heaven because he's a special creation. And then at the end of time, he's going to return. In fact, uh, he's going to return and land in Damascus. To fight a great battle outside of what is now uh, Tel Aviv and arrive in Jerusalem and reign there. This is Islam. By the way, that, that after this Jesus who has the sword will defeat the anti-Messiah. Is this so familiar? So you have the same <laughs> ideas. But I want to read this. This is great when it comes to to Mary. Uh, this is from uh, this is from the Hadith twenty one ninety to one. It it, it says this. Actually, yeah. And actually, I'm going to read the Hadith uh, 342 to 48. Um, uh, The angel said, O Mary, indeed, Allah has chosen and purified you and chosen you above the women of the worlds, plural. O Mary, be devoutly obedient to your Lord and prostrate and bow with those who bow. Indeed, Allah gives you good tidings of a word from him whose name will be Messiah, Jesus, the son of Mary, distinguished in this world and the hereafter, and amongst those brought near to Allah, he will speak to the people in the cradle and in maturity, and he will be of the righteous. She said, My Lord, how will I have a child when no man has touched me? The angel said, Such is Allah. He creates what he wills. When he decrees a matter, he only says, be, and it is, and he will teach him writing and wisdom and the Torah and the gospel. What I find is real interesting is that in, uh, in Surah uh, 21, 90 to 1, it says, And she, Mary, who guarded well her chastity, and thus we, Allah, breathed into her of our spirit. So, so, so Jesus is born of a virgin, and he is according to the Quran, but he's a combination between the breath or the spirit of God. Uh, and as humanity. Well, he's fully human, but whoa, what is going on here? So, uh, what do you think? Jesus does miracles, and, you know, it's pretty amazing.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, it's teaching, I mean, so there's so much in common, but, you know, we only ever um, hear about the, you know, the, the the differences, or maybe the perceived differences. Um, right. y you, you know, again, you know, maybe it's to scapegoat people and divide us, because heaven help us if we could all band together. What type of a world might we create? <laughs> um, well, well,
0: well, well, yeah, and of course, you know, you know the Quran, uh you know, you know, obviously declares special protection for Jews and Christians, of course. So according to the Surah 5727 and other places where it says, Then we sent following their footsteps our messengers and and followed with Jesus, son of Mary, and gave him the gospel. Uh, And we placed in the heart of those who followed him compassion and mercy and monasticism and so forth. You have that. You have a few other verses here, too. Um, um, But, um, uh, in fact, you have verses. What do you find here?
1: Oh, yeah, there's quite
0: quite a few. You actually have... I'm flipping through my Quran like you cannot believe... I think this thing is going to get, get really this much work out, but uh, I think my binding is going to break. Uh, let's see. Okay. Oh, let's see here. Oh, you're going to love this one. Uh, uh, Muslims are to fight against oppression and even defend Christians and Jews. Here it is. Uh, this is from Surah 22, 39-40. To, to those against whom war is made, permission is given to fight against because they are wrong, and verily God is most powerful for their aid. They are those who have expelled from their homes in defiance of right, for no other cause except that they say our Lord is God. If God did not check one set of people by means of another, there would surely have been pulled down monasteries, churches, synagogues, and mosques in which the name of God is commemorated in abundant measure. Unquote from the Quran. Hmm. There we go. So, what
1: back. Done with that. Thanks for so, that so you know so maybe there's no answer other than politics but if the Quran well, I, is really I, saying all of that then how can, do we justify all of the Arabs in the Middle East who are Muslim you know being so uh against uh Israel
0: Right well this, this is what I'm saying this is a modern political situation And when it comes to groups like ISIL they co- you can see right now they contradict the Quran if that nine right. eleven contradicts the Quran. I mean, this and it's not it's not piecemeal. That was a very long quote I just gave you. <laughs> you know yeah. in context,
1: yes. Um, well, you know, we we're uh, getting close to being out of time and I would be terribly remiss and, and um the women who follow the show would uh you know have my head if I don't ask you about the veil. Um, this whole idea of the veil. Now, I know it's not called for in the Quran, so will you explain how the veil came to be and why we think it's a Muslim thing? Uh,
0: Okay, so I guess I I I suppose I can't give a veiled response on that (laughs) one. Sorry. Um, Well, when it comes to the veil, uh, it... It is based on a controversial passage in the Sunnah that depicts Muhammad asking his wives to be behind the curtain when male guests came over. Yet his situation was unique since the people were using his wives to get closer to him because of his great fame. Uh, Some say this practice should apply to all Muslim women. Others say this action was meant only for his wives behind the curtain the word curtain can be translated as veil. See how that works? So you have those people who interpret the idea of the veil from a historical perspective and context and say, well, this has to do with a bunch of men trying to get the Muhammad through his wives, and he's telling them, get behind the curtain, as in the household, you know, the household curtain. Because, you know,
1: the set of doors,
0: in many cases they had curtains. And other people say, no, no, no. He's saying... He's using this as a model that uh, that the the wives are supposed to wear not a curtain but a veil over them, and that's the context. It's all how you read the Arabic, but you know, uh, yeah, Glenn.
1: Well, I was just going to say, you know, to, to piggyback on that, and I wish I could remember how to pronounce her name, but there's a, a Turkish woman, a uh, scholar, she's probably 95 now, and I, I can't remember uh, how you pronounce her name, but she was very briefly arrested. I don't know that she actually ever went to jail, but she's a Turkish Muslim scholar who was researching the veil, and one of the reasons she was arrested was because she brought up the fact and was teaching in her classes that the veil was actually pre-Islamic, and that men wore the veil as well as women, and it sometimes had to do with when they were being taught sexual rights. And that just set everybody crazy when she revealed this information she discovered. So, I mean, there, you know, there's another example of this of this going back even pre-Islam. Um, so the veil was not a you know a Muslim thing necessarily.
0: No, no. In fact, uh, reading uh, writings from like, like the Tibia, for example, when the uh, the Almoravids arrived in Spain. Uh, during the during the 1000s, the Almoravids were a group from Morocco. Uh, they were extremely uh, orthodox and fundamentalist and violent and pretty terrible. And they scared the Muslims, you know, as much as the Christians. You know, but one thing that they, the Muslims mentioned is that yes, and their, their women wear veils, like that was something unusual. It's like, well, these are Muslim they Women wear veils wow, This is really restrictive, can't believe it These are Muslim writings But yes, uh, so much Is a pre-Islamic And let's let's just get practical I'm sure that she got herself In trouble more for the reference To the sex aspects But let's get practical If you've been to the Middle East, and I know you have <laughs> And you go out into the desert Which I have And I know you have as well you're going to want to have your head covered and yeah. you're going to want to have your face covered because uh, all that sand is going to erode away your gums and your teeth. And, of yeah. course, for women, that's even more important. So there's, there's a real practical reason behind the veil, too. It's not just beauty. It's retaining that beauty, keeping the skin uh, smooth and pretty for, for their husband. They want to look good, and really the desert climate doesn't do much uh, for the skin regimen.
1: Yeah, it's rough. So, it's rough it, on the skin.
0: It, it, there's other reasons behind it, yes. But, but yeah, also I mean, also it's it, the groups of Roman Empire. Yeah, Go
1: ahead. well, I mean, it's just like the Bible will, you know, will say strange things about not eating shellfish or or pork because you know it was a practical way to make sure you didn't uh, maybe eat food after it had gone bad or maybe you didn't cook the pork enough or something. You know, we sort of lost the context of things.
0: Right. And the veil is very pragmatic for men as well as women in the desert context. Then it becomes a sense of orthodoxy when it moves beyond that, or if yeah. you don't need that. Yeah. I mean, condition. you know,
1: look at people riding in a caravan. You know, the men are as veiled as much as the women are.
0: <laughs> well, well, that's what I'm saying. You know, yeah. and so I mean, and, and of course, it later on becomes interpreted as oppression. Well what I to mention is that it also had Greeks and Romans they had their heads covered. Not necessarily, you know, something over their face, but they had their heads covered too. And it had to do with modesty, but that still is pre Islamic. And Jewish women the same and I mean this is just a cultural thing that's connected to the Middle East. And um and many other cultures as well. So we have to be very careful about saying, well it's Islam. You do have the interpretations uh it's so, funny, I had somebody in one of my classes come up to me and says, "Well, it, it, it says that women are supposed to wear the veil in the Quran," and she pointed to me and she was veiled herself. And that's fine. I, obviously, I I fully support it. If women want to wear the veil, I'm full support of that, and, and it's important to their beliefs. I'm full support. I think that's great. Right, sure. sure. I mean, we have we have Christian nuns. I mean, hello, you know. So that's, that's that's great. If you want to use that as observance, but if you want to take the next step and say Everybody's supposed to have the veil. That's where you, I draw the line. So I, have, I right. have friends who wear the veil. As long as they don't tell all the other women they have to wear it for their observance, what they do is their special connection with Allah. That's wonderful. In fact, it can be a beautiful thing. But the point is, yeah. if you use it for female you know, oppression, that's a problem. Well, this lady came up to me and said, it's two places in the Quran. I looked at her Quran and said the word veil. I went, This is ridiculous. Look at my Quran and didn't. What well, turns yeah. out. Is, is, that, is that the word? The word was the covering of the breasts. The covering of the breasts. And what happened is, <laughs> the Arabic, <laughs> the interpretation of the Arabic has, it, from certain perspectives, have changed to believe this covering includes the covering over the head. But this word in Arabic doesn't, this is, that, you know, does not not only mean the covering of the breast, but, but covers the head as well. Well, we know for a fact that, that uh, lexicons, Arabic lexicons, from the 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13, 1400s always understood this Arabic word as just near two places in the Quran, merely as covering the breast but not the head. And then later on they go, oh, well, that includes the head as well. That's what the Arabic word means. Once right, again, right. you're having beliefs informing. Uh, what the Quran is later on saying. But don't
1: we do that with the Bible, too? You know, you have
0: yeah. later interpretations.
1: Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I'm thinking, too, and, you know, and I'll admit, you know, I've been guilty of it as well, you know, and I've been annoyed with, uh, you know, any of these patriarchal religions or fundamentalist or re- religions that force women to do things that they wouldn't yes. rather do. Yeah, I know, because I know it's a popular thing. Uh, in goddess spirituality, when we see a woman in a burqa, you know, we tend to think that, you know, the men have made the women cover in a burqa because they simply cannot control their own libido, you know. And yep. I don't know, maybe some, maybe part of that's true, but, but it's probably, uh, you know, I, I think we're, we're making assumptions as well. We're, we're jumping to conclusions. Well, yeah.
0: Well and, and you yourself will know and, and and I know you know you look at you look at ancient pagan art and you look at the women a large portion of their time in sacred context, hey look, they're head veiled,
1: yeah
0: you, yeah, you know even Artemis of the Ephesians uh, has the veil in many uh, much of our coinage, well, actually their statues from the beginning, but also on the coinage all the way through to the to the early 300s. so they have a head covering. So yeah. I don't know. I guess we have to be you know, very careful about you know. I think when people think veil, maybe they're thinking of of the full face frontal covering. But, uh, yeah, we're always the
1: eyes. Yeah, yeah, more yeah, more I, of the burqa thing.
0: More the burqa, but but the burqa, Yeah, how many burkas do you see out there? You know, well, m- you know,
1: well, not many here in the United States, here. but no, some things. Yeah,
0: yeah. So what I'm saying <laughs> from here from perspective here. But
1: but you know you wonder I, well I mean look when you're when you're living in a bubble you only know the bubble I mean I I know that for myself uh, but I can't help but wonder how many of those women in the Middle East who are wearing the burqa wear it by choice or uh, or maybe it's um, oh what do some people say what is it Munchausen what is that syndrome where you're uh, you you know you start to think the way your captor thinks um, yes. Uh, um you know is it that or uh, you know it, it i don't know it, you know we look at it and we put our you know uh, put our western uh uh perspective on it and we only see a bad thing um and you know maybe it's not you know uh, to, to all of these to all of these women you know um and and i think sometimes we forget that um you know it's not just that they're brainwashed You know, maybe they have good reason for wanting to wear it.
0: Well, right, right. It's also everything to do with symbology. Looking at at the symbol, you know, the image. The image represents different things to different people from different contexts, uh, having learned their ideas from their own unique background. So, for one person, the veil represents uh, oppression, to another person, it represents liberation you know and so you know you know from from from, from men staring at them and, and you know you know so they'll they'll look at them as just people unfortunately that's based upon a, uh, a male uh, you know perspective but you know, also yeah. the idea you know, also the idea my friend in turkey she says well it's, I love the veil I go to the market nobody bothers me and then I go home to my husband and I'm you know and and, and it's so exciting because he sees me fully me and she loves it. I'm like and she really loves it. I'm thinking, Well, yeah. okay. Yeah. We have to be very careful. Some people and some people who are at this some people who have the veil see it as oppression on them, but people who are looking at it sometimes don't see the oppression. I mean those are all different perspectives, different ways right. of being of, you know, a symbol. But if well, the person really you know, wants to you veil, know, then so be it. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, I have wondered, though, about the burqa being black out in the heat of the desert. That almost feels like torture. Couldn't they have made the burqas white? (laughs) You know, Um, I I wonder if there's a reason for the burqas being black.
0: Yeah, and that's a very good question. Actually, that's a real good question. And, and one I am not answering because
1: I yeah I've, well I've, the I've, next next tremendous. time next time with one of your Muslim friends you know you oh, know say you yeah. know some of us in the West think these black burqas were meant to torture your women so you know, why don't you make the burqas white if you're not trying to make them suffer
0: <laughs> right right why well, I mean, uh, and so many you know like I said it depends on the perspective of the of the wearer and the one force of the West where, where I draw the line. It, it, well, it's Stockholm syndrome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, where I draw the line is is where somebody else forces them to do it. Yeah. And I draw the line of, of people who wear it forcing forcing other people to wear it. So yeah. there was I reject the idea of men forcing women to wear it and saying that. This is what the Quran says, or what or or the hadith says you have to do it because of that, or you're very bad, and of course, or other women, because women, mm, this is very strong, other women criticizing other women against mm-hmm. women who have who wear the veil, telling other women they have to wear it that's, that's well what you think.
1: see I was that was one of the peer pressure, you know um uh, yeah. that's probably very strong, you know um. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, well, we're we're almost out of time here, so I'm gonna. I want to give you the last word. I know we probably didn't cover everything we were going to talk about, but um, is there anything you it's wanted good- to make sure you wrapped with before I let you go?
0: Uh, well, I, I guess the the main thing I wanted to, to to leave off with is 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 that groups like ISIL and and Daesh, um, I, I know that. People say, "Well, you can interpret the Quran in, in the hadith in different ways." And um, I don't like going by percentage points. But the way the way those the way Dosh or just ISIL interprets the Quran is is so far from its central tenets that that really it appears to be a heretical. View of Islam I'm being very careful here I really am But uh, you know Just so many things Even their idea of jihad You know um, I'm just going to read a little bit of Quran here Uh, uh, 21 Sorry 2190 It says fight in the cause of God Those who fight you But do not transgress limits For God loves not transgressors Uh, the, The fighting has to be just According to the Quran It says and why should you not fight in the cause of God, those who, being weak, are ill-treated and oppressed? Men, women, and children, whose cry is, Our Lord, rescue us from this town, whose people are oppressors, and raise for us from you one who will protect, and raise for us from one who will help. And so the Quran says that, 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 uh, that Muslims, if they fight, they're supposed to, to help you know, women and, and, and children and, and you know, a just cause not kill women and children, you're following. And right. of course, the Quran makes it clear that, that when the other party refrains from aggression, that is not permissible to attack them, it says, but if they cease, God is forgiving and most merciful, and fight them out until there is no more tumult or oppression, and there prevail justice and faith in God. But if they cease, let there be no hostility except to those who practice oppression. So I mean you have this is all over the place. I mean all over the Quran it talks about these ideals. So where they get this is cherry picking out of context. But uh but really uh it, it shows that they're so far off track uh to some of the main tenets of Islam and they really do not follow the five pillars very well either. Hence right. the cop, You're terrible at that one, okay. That that really it's it's almost uh Unfortunately, it's it's almost like certain Christian groups that we know um, uh, that uh, don't follow Christianity in the least. They're very yeah. ignorant when it comes to the Quran.
1: Uh, yeah. And so
0: I guess the main thing I want to say is, when it comes to these these terrorist organizations like Daesh or ISIL, so much is just strictly politics and using religion upon people who are illiterate or not are not that knowledgeable about their own religion and taken an advantage of them to be a part of this movement. But it's yeah. so much as a political movement, not a religious well, movement.
1: It, well, yeah, I mean, you know, you think about these poor kids who haven't gone to school and they just go to these, uh, what is it, the madrasas, and if yep. they, you know, get one of these teachers who fill their head with this ISIL sort of uh, version of Islam, these poor kids don't know any better, you know, yeah. they they don't they don't have a way to, uh, I mean, look, no more than when I lived in the South and grew up in the Bible Belt, that's all I knew because we all lived in that bubble. And, yeah. um, I mean, I think it, it's really important to, um, you know, to remember that. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it you know, I always go back to education, 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 you know, and uh, here's, I guess, another good example of it um you know it, it, with with the you know uh, knowledge is power and um with with proper knowledge you can't be duped and exploited and lied to to do somebody else's bidding you know
0: yep if so. if you know, if you're not if if you're not doing very well and you don't have food on the table and a roof a nice roof over your head you'll be willing to believe almost anything as well to get out of that situation
1: but well, uh, yeah, I, education yeah, a friend of ours uh, was saying that she was reading an article that sometimes ISIL will, you know, roll into one of these towns and, you know, where they have no opportunity to make money and their family is starving and they say, and they will pay them to join forces. So if you have mm-hmm. children you can't feed and that's the only game in town, then maybe you very reluctantly do it because you don't want your kids to starve. Um, you know, it, it, it's so much more complicated than uh, I, I think. Sometimes maybe the news media makes it out because we never hear about the economic problems these people face that maybe force them into doing things that they don't want to do themselves.
0: Right, right. And and, and and of course, when the opportunity arises, you know, some people will believe almost about anything to get out of a desperate situation. Yeah, uh, and he also gives them something called an ideology, something to fight for, a purpose. Yeah, people like yeah. a purpose. And yeah, because we all need
1: a purpose. We we all need, we yeah. all need a purpose. Uh, you know, and I think even if we're um, uh, maybe misled, uh, you know, it uh, makes I don't know. It gives more meaning to your life, even if it's a, a crazy ideology, I guess. Yeah, and I mean, you look at the, the Westboro Baptist Church. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's right. Right, yeah, where, we're, we're, yeah, obviously where the, where the Bible is, is just used as an excuse to forward uh, their own uh, political interests, just the same thing when it comes to ISIL and these other groups, um, you know, we're going to have that. And unfortunately, uh, because of that perception we have, there's people on the other side reacting to that that are taking advantage of those who are less informed within them our circles within the, within uh, the United States or other places where you know you know they want to see look all Muslims believe this way and so look how they're acting they you know the us and them the black and white uh, you know the good guys the bad guys uh, people yeah. love to have these dualities they love to yeah. have uh, you know you know these very straight divisions but in reality when it comes to politics and religion and all
1: these other areas it's all gray yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> you're, you're and, and, and nobody's sure. really got the. and i think what's really important is nobody's got the you know the real moral high ground you know everybody's got some uh, skeletons in their closet so um right. you know just be fair about it. Well, James, I want to thank you for um, you know squeezing in so much information tonight, and uh, I look forward to uh, our talk next week. Um, I'm looking forward to that because I know sometimes goddess spirituality, even in academia, um, you know, uh, it it it's it scrutinized a lot. You know, so I, I'm calling next week's show "Beyond Gimbudas, um, you know, hard evidence for goddess worship in ancient times and uh, we'll get into archaeology and um, uh, you know, all of that stuff to prove that this isn't a feminist fantasy. Right.
0: It'll be interesting. We'll go into detail on okay. in that
1: one. Okay. Well, listen, thank you so much and um, I. Uh, in, until next week and if you want to give the title of your book again and uh, of course people can get it on Amazon, but um, go right ahead, please.
0: Oh, okay. Sorry, I just i space it out here. Um, the title of the book is Artemis of the Ephesians, M- Mystery, Magic, and Her Sacred Landscape. And that came out in 2014 in November. And uh, you just look up my name, James, and then Rietveld, R-I-E-T-V-E-L-D, V as a victory, and it should come right up. And I... Uh, Hope you enjoy the offering. Uh, it, was, it was fun to write, even though it took 10 years. Definitely <laughs> a labor of love. But uh, uh, in it, I articulate exactly how uh, many of the rituals connected to Artemis and the Ephesians were conducted uh, from direct inscriptional uh, uh, sources. And I even have exactly where to find those inscriptions. And oftentimes, I leave it Greek, in, in the original Greek Uh, in the the footnotes. But uh, it's still a fun read, and uh, it's great for reconstruction ideas as well.
1: Absolutely. And uh, for those who want to catch your radio show, uh, it's Passionate Voices Radio. You can Google it. And James' show is called Myth and Legend, History and Religion. Uh, and you can find that. And if you're local, uh, James also gives very popular talks on religion and spirituality, um, what, several times a month, right, at Common Ground and um, fill, fill, fill it in.
0: Yeah, at Common Ground in Santa Ana, Ipso Facto in Fullerton. And so I do in, I do two talks at Common Ground, two talks uh, at Ipso Facto in Fullerton. And they're open to the public, and they are free. Of course, if you want to give a little donation, uh, I'll be happy about that. But uh, they are free, and um, um, I talk about all sorts of topics related to history, religion, and archaeology.
1: And very popular. When we had you on the Joseph Campbell round table, we had standing room only. So uh if you're if you're local, you definitely want to know about uh, James's talks and attend. And if you're not here in Southern California, you can find him on Passionate Voices Radio. So James, thanks again and uh and I look forward to next Wednesday when we talk about goddess.
0: I do too. Thank
1: you, okay. Karen, so much.
0: Okay, good night. All right. <laughs>
1: Yes, indeed, it is time to awaken on so many different topics. And uh, I think James uh, helped us awaken a bit to uh, the fact and fiction of Islam. And, um, if you're one of my listeners, uh, you, uh, probably are into the sacred feminine and goddess. Um, uh, you know, maybe you are, maybe you aren't. Uh, but either way, I want to tell you about a great magazine that has been around, uh, for over 30 years called Sage Woman. Uh, Sage Woman celebrates the goddess in every woman and is doing, has been doing so for, uh, three decades. Uh, Sage Woman Magazine brings the wisdom of women's spirituality to over 10,000 women uh, every 88-page issue. And if you'd like to uh, find out more about that, you can check Sage Woman out online at sagewoman.com, or you can get uh, a free sample issue uh, by mentioning you heard this ad on Voices of the Sacred Feminine. Just call their toll-free number, 888-SAGE-WOMAN, which is 888-724-3966. So that's Sage Woman magazine, out for 30 years. Definitely has its finger on the pulse of the goddess community, you can find out about new books and tours, and uh, all sorts of uh, people who serve the goddess community. Um, uh, wonderful ads in the back uh, where you can find people in the community that do a lot of things that uh, you might be interested in, if if uh, you're a goddess woman or man. Uh, And also, um, if you're down in Southern California, I hope you'll visit the beautiful Goddess Temple of Orange County, which is open to the public uh, Friday and Saturday afternoons. For meditation, and, and you can also view the beautiful museum exhibits of goddess from the Paleolithic to the present. Uh, goddess spiritual celebration services are every Sunday, rain or shine, from 11 to 1230. And fourth Sunday is uh, for all genders, while all other Sundays are for adult women. And every Friday from 5 to 7, you can enjoy the temple's Venus Hour, which is Orange County's best Happy hour with libations, snacks, music, movies. And um might want to think about going there to meet new people, like-minded people. And it's all free. Uh, you can find out more about the Goddess Temple at their website, which is goddesstempleoc.org. goddesstempleoc.org. And... Um, one final thing, I want to make sure uh, if you haven't heard about it already, uh, you, uh, you know, I'd like you to tell you about it. Uh, for some time on the show, I've described the film Dancing with Gaia by Joe Carson. Uh, Joe's also written a book called Celebrate Wildness: Magic, Mirth, and Love on the Farafaria Path, which has just come out in a new expanded second edition. Uh, Farafaria calls itself a love culture for wild wilderness. Uh, it connects you to the fairy spirit of the land and stars around you and aims to create Uh, paradisal sanctuaries all over the earth. Uh, Rooted in ancient Crete, the Eleusin mysteries, troubadour practices, and megalithic traditions, Fariferia celebrates the goddess as the merry maiden called Choré. With laughter and play, they say Choré carries keys to the future. Uh, Celebrate Wildness is a true hardcover art book printed on heavy paper with images of the goddess. Uh, photos, symbols, and diagrams on almost every page, and it would make a fabulous gift, or a coffee table book would start wonderful conversations, no doubt, in your living room. Uh, And it's available from the Farrah Farrah website, which is spelled F-E-R-A, F-E-R-I-A. And I want to close uh, with Bernie Sanders' 12 Best Reasons for Being a Democratic Socialist. These are the reasons to vote vote for Bernie. Number one, uh, it brings about a major political and economic reforms. Number two would be an end to corporate welfare. Number three, a national public health care system would be developed. Number four, tuition-free public colleges and universities. Number five, a government that creates jobs, not prisoners. Six, a living minimum wage and real family leave. Seven, stopping climate change uh causing industries. 8, the wealthy must pay their fair share of taxes. 9, America's political system must be a democracy because right now we've got an oligarchy people. 10, democratic socialism is not a government takeover. That's really important because even I think Hillary's spokespeople out there are trying to label Bernie as a socialist when he's really a democratic socialist and it really uh there's really a big difference between the two. Uh, Also, equal treatment by government uh, so that we don't have racism. And 12, don't become cynical. um, Just get out there and work for change because change is afoot. Magic is afoot. And there are many people doing their magic to help Bernie Sanders. You know, I would love to see a woman in the White House, but not a corporatist. And uh, I really do believe that, uh, you know, no, Bernie is not a woman and Hillary Clinton is. But uh, I, I think we need what Bernie's offering. We don't need to continue the art oligarchy, and we don't need the tinkering around the edges. Uh, so anyway, we'll talk more about that in uh, shows to come. want to thank you for being with us tonight, and uh, please tune in again next Wednesday. Uh, Dr. Rietfeld um, uh, will be back on the show talking about uh, goddess spirituality, the things that even academia gets wrong and um, please go back and see some of the shows that uh, have been in the archives in December, Uh, some great shows that you probably missed um, that are very relevant today, but um, you might not have found them in the archives. Uh, And don't forget my audio book series as well. So thank you, listeners, and good night. Happy New Year, and start writing down those resolutions. Bye-bye.